Good morning, guys. Um, can I get a show of hands? How many were with us when we were back at Key School? Raise your hand. Okay, good, good number of you guys. Um, so many of you who were back with our, at our Key School days might have seen a blast from the past, a face right here in the middle. Um, yeah. Where, where, Peely, where are you? Peely? Peely. Are you back there somewhere? Where's Peely? There she is. Woo! Yeah, Peely. So uh, Peely was our worship leader, for those of you who are, are new to Grace. Peely was our worship leader for, I think, about six years or so. Um, and uh, she left two years ago um, to go to California. And um, so we, we were fortunate enough to have her back. She's visiting in town. And uh, we're trying to figure out how we can get her to stay. But um, anyway, so she's here today. And um, man, we, we just, we love her. So um, Peely, we're glad that you're here. Um, well, as Ryan said, we just want to welcome you, especially if this is your first time, just want to say a special welcome to you. Um, or maybe it's, it's, it's been a little while, um, you know, with the holiday last week and stuff. Um, if, you, if you weren't around, I want to give you a quick catch up as to what's going on around here. We are in a series called Countercultural Living. We kicked it off last Sunday, and um, we're using the, the New Testament book of First Peter, which is a book that we normally, uh, most of us probably don't have a lot of familiarity with. It's this great book. It's a short um, book of the New Testament, five chapters long, and uh, it really, um, it gives a lot of practical wisdom in there for how to live, uh, not necessarily the way that our culture or um, you know, maybe, you know, just some of, the, some of the things that we hear about how we're supposed to live, but um, in a way that God wants us to live. And so um, we've been looking at that. Last week, we, we looked at the first 12 verses of First Peter, which is written by Peter, the apostle who walked with Jesus. Um, so he's writing this letter, just so you know. He's writing this letter. It's about 64 A.D. There's tremendous persecution that is breaking out, um, and, and Christians all over are being persecuted. Peter is writing this letter to, um, to Christians who are scattered across parts of the Roman Empire, uh, most of them in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. That's really the focus of where he's, where he's writing, those people he's writing to. And so um, he begins his letter to them with this encouragement. You've got to think, you know, you're facing persecution, you're in a great minority, um, you've got the, the, you know, Roman Empire, which is just hell-bent against Christianity, trying to put it down, and so there's probably a lot of discouragement, a lot of fear, and he initially just starts his letter by encouraging um, these Christians, and just trying to remind them that God is with them. And then, in the next 10 verses, as we looked at last week, the next 10 verses, 11 different times, he's hammering on one thing. And that is for them to remember what God has done for them through Jesus Christ. He mentions salvation or eternal life with God 11 different times in 10 verses. And we looked at last week, the message was called, What Fuels You? And the idea that what fuels us is to remember what God has done for us. And so uh, we're going to pick it up in, um, in verse 13 today and continue on through the end of chapter 1. So that's where we will begin. Before we do that, let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, and uh, to be able to be in a country where we can freely gather without persecution. Um, We uh, are opening up your word to us. Give us fresh eyes, fresh ears, open hearts, and open minds to receive what you have. Speak personally to each one of us this morning, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so verse 13, 
He goes like this. He says, therefore, and that therefore is a big word because basically what he's saying is all that I've just been telling you about what you've got in Jesus and what God has done for you, okay? Therefore, with that in mind, it says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. Now, I don't know how that hits you at first glance, but to me that's kind of an interesting instruction there. To be holy as God is holy? How many holy people do we have in the room? Okay, just raise your hand. Okay. Oh, okay. We've got one. How old are you? How old are you? Eight. Okay. There might be a lot of truth to that right there. (laughs) I think that's the last time I was holy. Um, (laughs) And how many of you guys are sitting next to someone who thinks they're holy? (laughs) Don't raise your hand, please. Don't do that. That's... But for me, it causes me pause. I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, we're supposed to be holy. I mean, isn't only God holy, right? We're supposed to be holy just like God? Well, that's unattainable. Um, And Peter, writing this letter, he's not the only one who advances this idea. It's not the only place in the Bible that we see this. Actually, where Peter might have gotten this from is actually from hearing Jesus teach about it. If you look at the, from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus has just finished giving these instructions, and they're just radical, crazy, like how to, how to live God's way. I mean, unbelievable rock your world stuff, right? And he's just talked about how you're supposed to pray for those who persecute you and forgive your enemies. And he comes to the end of this little teaching, and this is what he says. Jesus Christ, he says, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be perfect? That's impossible. I mean, why do we get this command to do something that there's no way we can do? I mean, the Bible itself in 1 John 1, 8, it says pretty clearly, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, We're told to be holy like God is holy, or we're told to be perfect the way God is perfect, and yet we can never attain it. We're supposed to strive for it anyway. What's up with that? Well, what I think is cool about that command is that even though I'll never attain it, um, it gives me an ultimate goal. It kind of tells me this is the, the vision, this is the purpose for the Christian life. This is ultimately what you're supposed to be about, what you're striving for. But here's the cool thing to me. This is deeply humbling if we're to grasp this thing because none of us can do it. And so what's so cool to me, okay, and maybe that's just because I've had run-ins with Christians who think they've arrived. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know anybody like this? They think that they've got it all figured out. You know what I'm saying? And they are just, you cannot give them any more instruction. They've just, they know. they're They're basically in their own eyes, they're perfect. This command here reminds us that we'll never ultimately get there, at least not in our own power and our own strength. So it's, to me, that's, that's deeply humbling. And it's a reminder, I need God's help with that. Every day, to live the way ultimately God calls me to live, I need his help every day. That's the whole point of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, Jesus came to live what kind of life? 
a perfect life, right? He lived a life that none of us could live. So that through him, by believing in him as the son of God who died and gives us forgiveness of sins, we could essentially be holy in God's eyes. I mean, we could be, we could be perfect in God's eyes. That's the whole point of the Christian faith. And so I just think that's pretty cool. A great reminder that we do. We always fall short and it gives me something to pray about every day. Well, um, you know, my wife, Becky, uh, she is finally, this is pretty cool for me because she's finally starting to grasp this idea that I'm not perfect. You know, we've been married for, for nine years now, and, and it just, is, just recently has dawned on her. I've been telling her for a number of years, but she's finally getting it. I'm not perfect. Um, so that's exciting. That's exciting for me. Um, anyway, let's, let's keep moving. Um, it was funnier in the first service, but anyway. You guys awake out there? Okay. Um, So verse 17, and this is really the verse that I want us to anchor in today, okay? Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So Peter's instruction, and we're going to spend the rest of the time unpacking this instruction, but his instruction is, look, you're in a really difficult situation. Here's what you need to do. You need to live out the rest of your days fearing God. Now, what the heck does that mean? I mean, that's not a word that we use a lot around here at Grace, right? Uh, that's just fear isn't something that we generally talk about, the fear of God. Um, we tend to talk a lot more about God's love, about God's forgiveness, and um, we believe, you know, just as it says in Romans 2, 4, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Um, John and I definitely do not subscribe to fire, you know, hellfire and brimstone type of preaching. Um, this idea, and, and some of you guys actually, this might have been the way that you were first introduced to who God is. Uh, that, you know, basically it was fear tactics. It was this idea that you'd almost be scared into receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior because you're just really worried about, you know, being condemned to eternity in hell. Um, you know, we don't, we, we don't shy away from the fact that hell is a real place and it, it, it exists. But um, at the same time, uh, we don't believe that God is like kind of in this role of cosmic bully where he's threatening us with this big threat and that's how we're supposed to come to him. Because, you know, that might, that might work initially, but a relationship that's based on fear is not a healthy relationship. It, it's not sustainable long term. So, but let's, let's unpack this thing a little bit. Because over and over in the Bible, what we see is it talks about the fear of God. It talks about the fear of the Lord. Um, I did a cursory word search just online, and I found that this term, fearing God or fear of the Lord, uh, in the NIV translation came up over 120 times in the Old and New Testament. So this is a big deal. This isn't something that we're supposed to shy away from or not talk about, but we just need to understand it. Because in our day and age today, this word fear has a very negative connotation, doesn't it? Fear isn't something good. It's terrible. Why would we want to have fear? And it even says in Scripture, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. So what's the deal with fear? What's the deal with fearing God, the fear of the Lord? Well, I want to read you a couple of Proverbs. This first one is very famous. You've probably heard this one before. It says, uh, Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 22.4, Humility 
and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? I mean, that actually sounds like the fear of the Lord is probably a good thing. It's a healthy thing. I mean, look at all the things it brings us. It brings us wisdom and it brings us life and it brings us prosperity. Wow. Okay. So what's going on here? Well, I want to unpack this word for you. In, in, in Proverbs here, that word fear, there's two words. Uh, there's the noun form and the verb form, and they're, they're both related. Um, the noun form is yura, and the verb form is yare. Both of those words are defined primarily, the first definition is fear, okay? It's, it's, so we're, we're not getting around that. But right on the heels of that primary definition, the secondary definition is reverence, like a holy reverence. And then the, the, the definition right alongside that is to stand in awe, to stand in awe. So it's this idea of fear, but reverence and awe. There's other words in Hebrew, which, um, which also mean fear, but they're more to do with kind of this ang- anxious fear, this dread, this total terror. You know what I'm saying? So this one specifically, when we talk about Yurah or Yare, the fear of the Lord, when it's used that way, it's this much deeper understanding of, it's a, it's a fear that's based in reverence and awe, and it's based on an understanding of who Almighty God is and what that means for us. In, uh, in Exodus Chapter 14, 31, I'm going to read you a verse in just a second. But um, this is probably the most famous story. Um, it's, it's really central to the Jewish faith, and it's central to the Christian faith as well. Um, it's the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and um, they're, they're you know, crossing through the desert, and the Egyptians are pursuing them. And God does this amazing miracle. He parts the Red Sea, and the, the Israelites come through uh, the parting of the Red Sea. And then as the Egyptians pursue them and come across, God you know, closes up the waters, and the Israelites are saved. And it's this incredible, like, you know, it's, it's like religion-defining moment for the, the Jewish people. Look what it says right after that event in Exodus 14, 31. So this has just happened. The Red Sea has been parted, and, and the uh, Egyptian army has been destroyed. And it says, And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him, and in Moses, his servant. So they've just seen this tremendous miracle. And it says that they, they, they feared God. Well, they, they weren't like petrified, scared. I mean, their enemies have just been killed, right? I mean, there's nothing to be physically scared of. This fear that they're talking about is they are awestruck by what God has just done. They've seen this unexplainable miracle that you can only explain that it was an act of God. Peter, who's writing this letter, knows this firsthand. He's experienced it. He's, he walked with Jesus for years, and he saw firsthand the miracles that Jesus did. In Mark chapter 4, it captures the story of uh, Jesus on a boat with his disciples, and this storm comes. And Jesus is at the back of the boat, which if you know anything about boating, the back of the boat, if there's any sort of um, rough seas or whatever, is the calmest part of the boat because the front would be kind of jumping up and down and stuff. So Jesus is at the back of the boat, and he's asleep. 
And it's starting to get really bad. I'm guessing, the, it doesn't say, but I'm guessing the disciples were trying to kind of take care of things themselves. We don't want to wake Jesus up, you know, let's just get this figured out. And then the boat starts to take on water, and it starts to become pretty bad. And um, so they finally, they're like, oh, they just freak out. Love the disciples because they're always freaking out, you know. And they just totally lose it, and they come, I just imagine the scene, they come running to Jesus. Jesus is asleep, just shaking him. Jesus, don't you care? We're dying over it. We're about to drown. And, um, and it says Jesus wakes up. And he just goes, he just gets up and he addresses the, the, the wind and the waves and says, be still. And everything goes calm. And uh, what I want to focus on is verse 41. It says that the disciples were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, if you were just reading this and you kind of, you know, we're just looking at this kind of maybe from an eight-year-old's perspective, maybe, you know, that holy perspective. Um, you, just at first glance, you're like, what are they terrified of, right? I mean, the storm's over. <laughs> They're safe. And it's not like they were, I mean, were they really, I mean, Jesus was on their side. It's not like they thought Jesus, you know, it wasn't like quaking in my shoes kind of a terrified like jesus is about to he just said that now he's gonna just boom just kill all of us for not having enough faith i mean they knew they'd walked with jesus you know what i'm saying what's this what's the deal well here's what's interesting in the greek that word terrified if you do an actual literal translation um it's it's rendered this way it's rendered they the disciples feared great fear they feared great fear there is this emphasis that you know they were so unbelievably in awe of what had just happened, that they, they just couldn't, have, they feared great fear. I mean, their, their, their awe factor, their reverence factor at that moment, they were like, even the, I mean, who the heck is this? Even the wind and the waves bow down. They, they knew that this was no mere man. This wasn't just some rabbi who'd, you know, done a couple of healings or something. I mean, this was, this was like God in human flesh. This is unbelievable. And so Peter was there. He was, he'd seen this. You know? He'd experienced this, this deep fear of God, this deep reverence for God. And so what he's doing is he's writing to these people who now are, you know, this is 30 years after Jesus has died, you know, 60, 64 AD. And he's writing them and just trying to impress upon them the importance of, of being in fear of God, of having a deep sense of respect and reverence and be in awe of who God is. And that's what he's trying to communicate to these disciples. Now, some of you guys may be sitting here going, well, okay, well, if this idea, you know, is much more about this deep reverence for God or, you know, to be in awe of who God is and fear really doesn't, you know, adequately capture it, then why don't, you know, why don't some of our translations just translate it differently? I mean, why do they keep saying the fear of the Lord? Uh, I actually think that if they did that, they'd be doing a tremendous disservice to us. Because even though for us, fear, we kind of define it one way in our minds, um, you know, if we were to just remove that, I think we would lose something. This is Almighty God that we're talking about. You know what I'm saying? And so to just take that out, there, there is some sort of a, a beautiful tension that's there. When we talk about, you know, at some level, in some sense, there is this, like, incredible fear, like a healthy reverent fear that we should have for God. For me, it's this idea of like almighty God is just awesome. You know, just awesome. And, and we, we're not so awesome. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of how, how, how I look at it. So 
what I want to do is I want to um, help you to try and wrap your mind around. That's what I've been trying to do all week is to wrap my mind around, okay, so what does this actually mean? What does this look like to fear the Lord, okay? Um, so I got some fill-ins for you. It'll help you to follow along. Um, I want to I give you four things that, that help us understand what the fear of God is like. The fear of God, this is the first one, is a profound love and respect for God. 1 Samuel 12, 24, it says, But be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you. Again, we talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to rehash that. But if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that message because it's I, this idea that ultimately our worship of God is loving God back. It's, it's remembering all the things that God has done for us and just saying, God, how can I just show my appreciation? How can I love you back? It's just a profound love and respect for God and what he's done for us in our life. Second thing, the fear of God is taking God's promises and commands seriously. In the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, it's one of the wisdom books of the Bible. Um, it's, it's all about searching for life's meaning and purpose and uh, towards the end of the book, uh, in summary, it says this in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So when we have an attitude of, of fear of God, of, of respect for God, what we realize is the things that God has promised, he's going to hold to those things. And when God asks us to do something, when he, makes it, when he commands us to do something, it's just being obedient to that. That's what it means to fear God. Next one. The fear of God is knowing God is always watching. Psalm 33, 18 and 19 says, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. So, It's this idea that God is always watching, watching every action, every motive, every thought that comes through our mind. God is with us and God is watching. This, for me, is a huge one. It's huge. I don't know if you guys had heard about, uh, there was this burglar who broke into a house and uh, the family was gone. And um, so he he broke in, he got in relatively easily as the middle of the night. And uh, everything was dark, so he kept the lights off so that you know, no one would be suspicious. And he's, he's starting to go into the first room, and he hears this voice. It doesn't sound like a human voice, um, but it's this voice that sounds more like a bird, like a parrot. And it goes like this. I see you, and Jesus sees you. And he looks around, and he kind of thinks for a second. He's like, ah, you know, he's like, it's not a person. It sounds like a bird. I'm going to go find that bird and kill it and shut it up. So he starts going from different rooms, and he keeps hearing this, I see you, and Jesus sees you. And he's trying to find it, and he's looking around. He's got his flashlight out, and he's searching around the different rooms. And he starts to get closer as he makes his way to the family room, and he hears it again louder this time, I see you, and Jesus sees you. (laughs) And so he gets in the family room, and he shines the light around, and then all of a sudden, right as the bird is getting ready to talk again, he shines shines his light right on this birdcage. And there's this little parrot, and he goes, I see you, and Jesus sees you. And so he's looking at this, and what he notices is the the birdcage is sitting on this table, and underneath the table, there's this Rottweiler 
named Jesus. And the bird goes, attack, Jesus, attack! But this, this truth that, that Jesus is watching, God is watching what we do, that's a big deal for me. I don't know if that's a big deal for you, but this is tremendously helpful for me, okay? Because the reality is, you know, and we all face this, there's certain things that we can do, and they're not right, but you know what? If we can get away with them and no one's ever going to find out, what's really the big deal? And so, um, you know, those temptations, you know, come across, and um, you know, for me, this is what anchors me. This is my accountability. It's, it's knowing that God is watching me. It's knowing that ultimately I have an accountability to God. And, you know, the Bible is very clear that one day we will all meet our maker. We will all face God and God is the judge who judges us. And so for me, when I talk about fearing God or, you know, thinking about this ultimate, you know, judgment or whatever, for me, it's not like a, I'm quaking in my shoes, I'm freaking out, like, I think that God's just going to totally strike me down for the things that I've done. Because what we're, we're told in Scripture is that that's the whole point of Jesus, right? We believe in Jesus, he forgives us of our sins, we confess we're not perfect, we could never stand in the presence of Almighty God and claim to be like God because that would be impossible. We're human. We make mistakes every single day of our lives. So, you know, I know that through Jesus Christ, like, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. I stand before God and I'm going to be fine. But I still have a fear of God. I still have a fear of God in that judgment. My fear isn't, you know, the ultimate smackdown. Boom. He's just going to nail me. It's not that. Okay. But here's what my fear is. It's this fear that I would stand before the one who created me, who, who, you know, who loves me more than anyone in this world could ever love me, and that I would then have to give an analysis where I would see kind of the things that I did, you know, callously that I knew would, would be hurtful, and to be, have to stand there before God and, and know that I was letting God down, you know. Uh, that, for me, is, is, is a healthy type of a fear. It's an accountability thing, and, uh, and it's huge. It's huge for me. I, I really don't have much of a struggle uh, because I know that ultimately God is going to judge me and judge those things. Even though I'm forgiven, even though it, it's going to be all good, it's just that, that sense of that I would let God down at that level is something that I just don't want to deal with. So I don't know what it is for you, but that one is huge for me, knowing God is always watching. Last one is this. Uh, fear of God is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. So the point, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to give you kind of a scriptural understanding of what it means to fear God. The, the point in all of this, why we're going through this, the big picture takeaway is that when you have this healthy fear of God, like when you're in awe and just reverence of who God is and what God has done for you, it's much easier. You got to hear me on this. It's much easier to live the life the way God wants you to live it. It's much easier to do those things. They're not so difficult because you're like, okay, you know, you just see things in a bigger perspective. You're like, okay, this is something that God wants me to do and God is awesome and amazing and incredible and I should just naturally want to do those things. I'm not saying it ever gets super simple or whatever, but it gets a lot easier if you can, if you can increase your fear factor, if you can increase your awe factor there. Now, 
Here's the rub. Some of you are already, you were thinking this five minutes into this message. The rub is this. Okay, that sounds good. Fear God. What the heck does that look I mean, how do you do that? How do I, okay, that's what it means to live it out. Okay, you obey God's commands and you take his promises seriously and you, you know, you remember God's watching. But how do you actually like get that when you don't have it? When you don't stand in awe of God? I mean, how do you develop that inside? And that for me, and just, you know, to be real with you guys, is very difficult. It's very difficult. I mean, we're in a very casual church. You know what I'm saying? You can walk into some churches and there's just a level of like reverence in the building. You know what I'm saying? You walk into a Catholic church and man, I mean, it's a totally different feel and vibe. And here at Grace, it's like, come as you are. It's cool. As long as you don't spill something on these chairs that they tell us cost like $500,000 a piece and we'll have to replace a whole row because they don't detach or something ridiculous. As long as you don't do that, there's really nothing to worry about. You know, you just come and God loves you and it's cool and whatever. Um, so my problem, my problem is, you know, that I know that God is so approachable, you know, and we talk about Jesus and just whatever, come exactly as you are. And we can, that's the thing we can, it's kind of paradoxical, but at the same time, it's almighty God that we're supposed to stand in awe of. And I'm so jealous, you guys, you know, I'm jealous of, I'm jealous of those Israelites who got to see that Red Sea get parted. You know, if I was there, it would be a lot easier for me to believe certain things, okay? My my fear factor, my being in awe of God would just, it would just, it would come a lot more naturally for me. I could just be like, oh, I remember, yeah, that was last week. Man, that was, that was amazing. Or the disciples, to, to like get to walk with Jesus, wouldn't that be amazing? To see the miracles, to see him calm the stormy sea. I mean, I feel, okay, after that, like he tells me to do something. I'm like, okay, Jesus, I'm good. I'll do that. You know what I'm saying? I don't have the pushback and why and all that stuff. So when you haven't physically been there, and this is really what Peter's after with, with the, you know, the recipients of this letter. He knows that this is 30 years after Jesus has, has been crucified and resurrected, and they haven't seen Jesus. Um, so he recognizes that it's difficult too. Um, and so he's trying to encourage them in this, because they're not going to be able to have these, you know, some like cool, like physical miracle, most of them, whatever. I don't know how many of you in this room have had something like that, um, where you just had like this incredible God thing that happened in your life that now you will always draw back on that. You, whenever your faith gets weak, whenever you start to question everything, you will always go, but there is no other way to explain what happened in my life than X, whatever that was. Um, for me, um, you know, I can think of a few moments, but I don't have anything that really is just like, you know, unbelievable Red Sea parting, Jesus calming a storm kind of a thing. And so what I find is to try and develop my fear of God, my reverence of God, be in awe of God, is um, that there are certain places where that happens for me. Um, sometimes they'll just hit me like a random worship song that's played or something. But um, oftentimes for me, it's like in the outdoors, it's in nature. And... Um, you know, I, I remember standing not too long ago, like standing looking out at the ocean, like just after the sunset, and just having this unbelievable, profound awareness of how huge God is and how just infinitely small I am, you know, relative to God. And it was just one of those it was one of those moments where I was just like, God, you are awesome. Um, so I don't know what it is for you, but but here's the thing: I encourage you to try and think about. What are, those, what are those times when you've really stood in awe of God? Or what are those things that really cause you to step back and be like, God, you are awesome. 
because you have to push into those things. That's really, really important. You've got to keep everything in your life in, that per, in the perspective of, you know, an awesome, holy God that we're supposed to live for. So Peter, as he finishes out chapter 1 of his letter, this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to do this. He knows that these guys he's writing to, they haven't seen Jesus. You know, they haven't seen the Red Sea parting. And this is what he says to them. He says in verse 18, he says, look, you got you to fear God. Live your life fearing God. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Talking about Jesus living that perfect life and dying on the cross for our sins. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. So what Peter is just trying to have them anchor in there to help raise their fear, reverence, awe factor a little bit is just trying to encourage them to remember what Jesus Christ has done for them. This is what enables us to to serve God when we don't even want to do that. You know, to to live a certain way when naturally we would want to fight against that. Uh, Peter is going to go on in verse 22 and he's going to talk about how he's calling these Christians who are kind of scattered around and being persecuted to really come together and love, love each other. And that word love in the Greek is agape. There's several different words for love. The word that's being used there is, um, it has to do with an unconditional love. It's a love of the will. It's not a feeling. It's not, oh, these people, you know, go out and find the, the, the other Christians who you really like and get along with. He's saying, no, you've got to love. You've got to band together. You've got to love each other. That's how you're going to get through this. This is the way Jesus calls us to live. And so his point here is that, you know, if you have developed a sense of what God has done for you and you can keep your eyes on how awesome God is and you can kind of live fearing God, it will enable you to do things that you don't always naturally want to do. It'll just come more naturally to you. It'll be a little bit easier to do it. So that really is, uh, is what I want you guys to try and do this week, is just to push into this a little bit, to try and find ways um, to... to increase your fear factor of God, to, to push into that and, and find ways where hopefully you'll be able to just stand in awe of God. Um, many of you guys, the starting point will just be, God, I have no idea how to do that. I, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know where that's going to come from. It's just to start praying about it. God, just let me have a, a, just a renewed sense of how awesome you are and let that start to dictate my life. Uh, if you'd like someone to pray with you, we have a prayer team that, that is right along this wall after the service or during the last song. You can just go right over there and someone will pray for you about that. But push into this thing because it really holds a key to living the Christian life. And what you're going to find is these next few weeks of this series, as things start to get really practical okay, and countercultural, you're going to say, well, I don't want to do that. Mm-mm. You've got you to gotta have something to anchor on. You've got to have something that's going to fuel you. You've got to have something that's going to drive you and help you to actually be able to do that. And that's only something that you can get from God. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for today and uh, for this letter that still speaks so powerfully to each of us who are trying to follow you, God. Um, this whole 
concept of, of fearing you and having a healthy fear, uh, you know, having a, a deep level of respect and, and to be in awe of you, it's tough, God. It's tough for us to, to wrap our minds around what exactly that looks like. And um, Lord, for many of us, um, you know, we haven't had this like unbelievable encounter with you. We're just taking each day on faith. And I just pray, Father, that you would just um, give us a renewed sense of you and what you mean to us in our lives, God. Um, We thank you, God. And as we sing this last song, I pray that you'd help us just to reflect on these words and and the imagery um, of how awesome you are, God, and how small we are, but how much you love us even in spite of all that. And um, Lord, we just thank you. Thank you for all you've done for us. Just help us, God. Um, help us to see things as you see them. And um, we just, we just want to live for you, make you happy, God, bring you glory. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.